Luke writes, as Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem, shout towards Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. As he entered a village there, ten men with leprosy stood at a distance, crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. He looked at them and said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed of their leprosy. Shout as they went. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, praise God. He fell to the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? Has no, has no one returned to give glory to God except the foreigner? And Jesus said to the man, stand up and go. Your faith has healed you. Shout, has healed you. All right, please be seated. God, bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, this is the fourth week of a series that we're calling Starting Point. Really, when we use that word starting point, we, we're, it's another way of us saying it's a fresh opportunity for all of us, wherever we are along the spectrum of, uh, of faith, from skeptical to being walking with God for years. It's a fresh opportunity for us to go deeper in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Shout deeper. And for the last several weeks, we've looked at some of the, what I want to call just some of the basics, right? That if you want to go deeper, you, you really do have to wrestle with who is Jesus Christ to you? Who is he? You've got to figure out how you, what, what does sin mean to you? And what's your relationship to that? You've got to have some understanding of what I've called the unbelievable expression of God's grace. And then today we want to take a step back and look at what does a response, a faithful response, what does that look like to God's grace? Now as we go through this series, I just drew this because I want to remind you about this, uh, is that, you know, a few weeks ago I shared with you this, this triangle. And it really reflects my concept of Christian discipleship. What does it mean to grow in our faith? Well, it essentially means three things. It means that, uh, to say that my faith is growing, it means that my trust in Jesus, my trust in Jesus, let me write Jesus up here, shout Jesus, is growing more and more. Do I trust Jesus more today than I did a year ago or six years ago? It also means that my commitment to Jesus should also be growing deeper. Everybody shout deeper. Yeah. Am I more committed to Jesus today than I was six months ago? Commitment is measured by, uh, does my commitment, am I, am I prepared to do some things six months later than I was before just because of my commitment? Or have I stopped doing some things that I used to love to do solely because of my commitment in Jesus? And then lastly, is my heart expanding? Come on, everybody touch your heart. Say heart. Is my heart expanding? Uh, am I growing because of my relationship with Jesus more generous, 
Is my heart growing because of my relationship with Jesus more tender, more sensitive? Am I more sensitive to the voice of God? Am I more sensitive to the pain and the brokenness around me? Am I more sensitive to what God is calling me to do as a spouse or as a parent or as a child? Does my heart break more? Is my heart growing? When we ask these questions, and listen, for the rest of your life on this planet, this is really the shape of our discipleship growth. Either our trust is growing, our commitment is deepening, our heart's becoming more generous and more sensitive. Whatever the theological discussion you want to have, you're going to be moving around this triangle, hopefully more and more and more. And so today, I want to look at a portion of this. And so I've labeled this message, Trust and Obey. I lifted it from a, when I was a kid growing up. That used to be a hymn. And some of you may remember the hymn, Just Trust and Obey. If you look at this on the chart, I just so that you can get it, and I'll refer to it. When you talk about obey, if I had to write it, I'd write it over here. Obedience. That's another way of measuring your commitment. Now, I love this teaching in Luke, and I particularly am interested in how it starts off. Because remember, I'm talking about our response to this amazing grace. Luke is such a great story writer. You should just know, uh, just off the, for, for sake of history, that Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul, more than likely in his partnership with Paul, he met John and James and Matthew, those who walked side by side with Jesus, knew him personally, gathered the stories from them, and these stories he fashioned into this book that we call the Gospel of Luke. And from his own records, he also writes the book of Acts, which is really the, the birth of what we now call the church. And he's a powerful writer. He's a physician uh, by trade. That's his career. But as he writes about Jesus, it, 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 Jesus just comes to life, if you will, as you walk and hear his teaching and his experience. So he's not just sharing the stories of Jesus, but he's putting these stories together uh, as, they, uh, as he has them in order to teach us and to deepen our experience, and really to deepen this experience of trust and commitment. And so how this particular segment starts is significant. If you go back to verse 11, you notice here at verse 11, notice what it says, as Jesus continued on towards Jerusalem. Everybody shout, towards Jerusalem. If you were part of the early church and you were reading this for the first time, you have already figured out that back at chapter 9, verse 51, is the very first time that Luke calls our attention to the fact that Jesus is setting his face towards Jerusalem. Here it is. As the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, as Colonel says, okay, we know this is going to happen in Jerusalem, this is crucifixion, Jesus resolutely, shout resolutely, means I'm not going to turn back, sets out for Jerusalem. So whenever Luke notes that, what he's suggesting is that what you're about to hear and experience from Jesus following this is to be interpreted 
against the backdrop of what Jesus did once he got to Jerusalem. And, and you, you could substitute it with the rally cry, remember Jerusalem. Everybody shout, remember Jerusalem. Remember Jerusalem, remember Jerusalem. You remember what happened when Jesus got to Jerusalem, right? Jesus got to Jerusalem on this trip. We, we commemorated one of the things that happened just a few moments ago without communion. For he sat at the, in this upper room, with the table with his disciples for the last time. And he said to them, essentially, the Passover lamb that has been celebrated by centuries, for centuries by people. Tonight, I want you to know that I am that Passover lamb. For this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. And not too many hours later, he's arrested. He's brutally beaten beyond recognition. He's ultimately hoisted up on a cross. His hands are nailed. His feet are nailed. You can hear the screams. I assume that those who are reading this, some of them were alive during that time as Christ is, is being crucified from the cross. And there he dies. And with that death comes hopelessness. But how many of you know that just a few days later, early on Sunday morning, they went to dress his body, and the good news is that the tomb was empty, and he is alive. Isn't that just amazing? He's alive. That was the announcement. He's alive. And so the first century Christians would have, have crisscrossed with people who knew that and experienced him as the resurrected one. Paul certainly had this fabulous news. He's alive. So, the question would normally come to mind if you're in a small group in a first century home and you're thinking, you're reading this text, it says, well, he's going to Jerusalem and you just remembered all the stuff I just told you about the death and the crucifixion. But then you say, but he got up again. Surely somebody would ask the question, well, if he knew he was going to get up, why did he go through all that? Why did he crucify and tortured and punished? Why? Can you say why? And if you were in one of those small homes that people would gather in, someone would say to you, he did it for you. And he did it for me. Now the question comes to mind, but how does that really apply? Some of this we've worked through, but, but this is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, let me back into it two ways. My wife uh, is a medical doctor, a local hospital. She has a friend who's a Muslim, devout follower, of, devoted to the faith of Islam. They often exchange, uh, uh, discuss very uh, warmly and lovingly their various faiths, where they are different. And uh, she spends a lot of time helping, trying to help Rhonda to uh, learn a lot about Islam and Muhammad, etc. And Rhonda spends a lot of time trying to help her learn a whole lot about Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. One of the critiques that she has levied against, uh, you know, for her, and I get where she's coming from. She says, look, here's one of the things that confused me about Christians. She said, Christians, they just, it's, it's like they can just do anything crazy. And then they say, well, you know, Jesus died for my sins. I'm forgiven. 
And then they're going to do, they do something else crazy. And they say, oh, you know, Jesus died for my sins and I'm forgiven. And, and she said, for me, that just doesn't hold any credibility. She said, for us, we have to go atone for our stuff. Well, in some way, I want to just keep that discussion in the backdrop of the rest of our time together here today. Another point. A couple of days ago, I went to L.A. with Rhonda because somebody gave us tickets to go see Hamilton. The Hamiltons went to see Hamilton. <laughs> and as excited as I was, I was sick as a dog the day of the play, of the, of the, of the musical, of the Broadway show, because I had this cold. I was in the bed half of the day. But you better know, I found a way to get in my seat that, that night. And y'all, I'm here to tell you, that's an awesome, it is, it is the, it's the bomb. It's just the bomb. It's just the bomb. You've seen it. Yeah, go ahead and celebrate. If you've seen it, you can celebrate. If you haven't seen it, try to see it. All right. So, I was just so glad I went. And one of the things that drops, jumps out at me about Alexander Hamilton's life, that's what it's about, is that midway through his life, he makes a horrible set of mistakes. He ends up cheating on his wife, it's exposed, it destroys him politically, it destroys his marriage. And then he tries to advise his son, and the advice he gave his son ended up with his son being killed. Just think how horrible it is to give your child some advice, and it leads to their death. He lost his marriage, lost his career. At the end of the day, his wife forgave him. But my sense is, as I followed the the, 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 the Broadway production is that he never really forgave himself. For him, what I want to call the Alexander Hamilton condition is he lived with this part of himself, this, this, this set of experiences, particularly the loss of his son because of his bad advice. And what I, I, I just will label what, what felt to him like the unforgivable. And even though his wife had forgave him and all of that, I don't believe he actually, truly, ever forgave himself. At the end of the day, his life ends with him in a duel with Aaron Burr, and he does the same thing he told his son to do. He's shot and killed. He dies in the very same place that his son died, the same way. And I think for Hamilton, he felt that was fitting. Now, I raise this because I think as quiet as it is kept, if you're a human and if you're in this room, you and I and all of us, somewhere in our lives, there is some incident that even now feels like that unforgivable thing. We all live with these regrets. You shout regrets, these regrets, shrouded by shame. For some of us, we've never told anybody about it. For others, we try to, try to drown it by how much we work. Others among us, we try to drink it away. Some of us try to sex it away. Some of us try to shop it away. 
And some of us, we just rationalize it away. Here's what we say. Well, you know, I'm just human. Tell the person next to you, you're only human. That's what it is. This is what we mean by that. Well, I'm human. You know, humans are imperfected and, you know, so I'm just, I messed up. There's no need for me to try to change. I can't change. I'm just, it's my excuse for remaining the same. It's my excuse for not struggling with transformation in my life. Come on, man, I'm just human. Luke was here, though. He'd say to you, We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And he would say to Alexander Hamilton, come over and sit down, son. I know you got this thing, you can't forgive yourself. But I want you to remember Jerusalem. Alexander said, what's the big deal with Jerusalem? He would say, he would say Jesus climbed Golgotha Hill and allowed them to crucify him. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was punished. You know why? Why? So he could take the guilt that's attached to your unforgivable and put it upon himself so that he could set you free. And at the end of the day, Jesus pays the debt that you can never pay. Somebody shout, remember Jerusalem. We said, Alexander, if you can believe that, man, you don't have to end up dying where your son died just to try to make it right. Jesus is taking care of that. Go ahead and live your life and become all that you can be. Shout, good news. Good news. Now, that's the lens that Luke wants you to interpret the, te- the teaching and the lesson, the story that he's about to share. He's about to allow us uh, in to see Jesus at work. And so on the one hand, the story is about a healing. It's a physical healing. A lot of physical healing took place around Jesus. That's a big deal. But through the lens of remembering Jerusalem, the story is about far more than just the physical healing. So it begins with this notion Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, there's a couple of insights about Jesus that I just want to point out as we just walk with Luke through this text. So in verse 11, you go to verse 12 and 13, put it up there. You see, it says, and so he's on his way to Jerusalem. He ends up at the border between Galilee and Samaria. Watch this. And it says he enters a village. And there, there are ten men who have leprosy. And they are crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. A couple of insights here. It is significant that Luke does not name the village. Luke is particular about names, for example. Uh, He names cities and villages. He names people that other writers would ignore. 
especially women and marginalized people. Elizabeth, for example, at the beginning of his book, he talks about who she is and traces her back, her lineage to Aaron. But here, he suggests that the village is so insignificant that we don't need to know the name. Here is the good news point I think he's making about Jesus. There is no place that is so insignificant that Jesus will not enter to find you. There's no place that you can be that he won't come. He'll show up in a jailhouse if necessary to find you. That's how much he cares. The second thing he points out, I, I think is, I love this, is he says there's 10 men. And by the time we finish the story, we, dis we discover that one is a Samaritan and the other nine, we assume, Jewish men. Now, this is remarkable because in that context, listen, this is the border between Samaria and Galilee. Galilee is a Jewish side. Jews and Samaritans, they didn't mix it up. They, they, were, they were biased against one another, and they, they had all kinds of major issues. They, they, they were kind of like Republicans and Democrats today. They wanted anything to do with one another. Racial and political and religious separation was there. And yet, these Jewish men and this Samaritan man was in the same small group. They were all lipids. What does that say? Here's what I think Luke is trying to say. When it comes to humanity, there are some parts of the human experience, despite our flashes of brilliance, despite our technological advancement, despite the places we are in history, at the end of the day, we all have the Alexander Hamilton condition, and it transcends race and class and finances. It transcends political affiliation. At the end of the day, the Alexander Hamilton condition puts us all in the same group. We're all sinners, desperately in need of what Jesus uniquely has to give. Tell the person next to you, the two of us, we're in the same group. Tell them. You're in the same group. It's a big group. We, 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 it, to, to spiritualize the physical element, we all have, have had, we all got leprosy. Use that term. And then, this is where the story gets rich, and this is where the theology leaps off the pages for us. Remember the backdrop of Jerusalem. They cry out, Jesus, Master, have mercy. Oh, I don't want to forget this point. These guys who are crying out, they're basically invisible to the broader public. They're kind of like the homeless and folk. You just become so used to them being around. They just kind of blend in with the environment. You just kind of pass them by. Don't pay them any attention. They're basically invisible. And yet when they cry out for Jesus, the text says, essentially, when he sees them, he then moves to heal them. Here's the good news. Here's the good news. See, I bet you there's some folk in here. In your own life, you feel invisible. 
Maybe you feel invisible in your relationship with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. All that you do to try to love and to try to amplify just doesn't seem to be making. Maybe you feel invisible when it comes to your parents. That your parents just don't, they just do not see who you are. Maybe you feel invisible on your job. Everybody's getting promoted but you. Maybe you feel invisible on the social scene. All of your good friends are getting married at least, and those who are not getting married, they're at least going out and having a good time dating. You just you ain't had nobody call you the last two weeks or return your call. I don't know. Maybe you feel invisible in a church like this. Your gifts overlooked. Here is the good news of the text. Maybe I don't see you. Maybe your mama doesn't see you. Maybe the cute guy across the aisle doesn't see you, but Jesus sees you. He sees all of you, and he loves all of you. The text says he saw them, and when he saw them, y'all, this is where it gets rich now. When he saw them, this is fascinating for me. He doesn't touch them. He doesn't speak any miraculous words over them. He doesn't even say to them, you're healed. He just says to them, go show yourself to the um, priest. Now, here's the meaning. The priest in that day was responsible for declaring if somebody who'd had a disease like leprosy, the priest had the responsibility to declare they're healed, which would then allow them to re-enter community. Shout community. Community. That's what the priest would do. So what Jesus essentially was saying was, go on to the hospital. When you get to the doctor, the doctor's going to tell you you're healed. But nothing had changed. Shout nothing. Nothing had changed. There was no healing on the spot. There was no change. All we do is, all we know is we watch the text. And these ten guys, they just turn and they start walking. Can you say Trust. They just turn and they start walking. Can you say obey? That's what they're doing. It's, 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 it's not a kind of intellectual trust. Well, I just believe. No, I have no sign that he's healed me. But because you're Jesus and because you said start walking towards the priest, I, I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey. Not perfectly. It didn't say they were running. That, that, that might have been me. I might have been running. Come on now. <laughs> but they might have just been walking. I'm sure they were battling in their mind. Should I do this? Should I? This doesn't really make any sense. This is kind of crazy. And yet they kept going. And what Luke is trying to get you to see, do you want to access what Jesus has done for you on the cross? It's not complicated. It, 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 it is as simple as trusting and what? Now, here's where it gets interesting. Here's where it gets interesting. You see, a Muslim friend, I think to some, time, to, to some degree, there may be a part of what she says correct. Because there are some folk who, if you ask them, are you a Christian? They would say, sure. But following Jesus is not the top of their list. And yes, when they mess up and they get rid of the trouble, they say, Jesus, will you forgive me? And you know, Jesus, he's not crazy. 
He knows you're not following him, but he loves so deeply. Come on now. That he'll go ahead and forgive you anyhow. Come on. Because, you know, sometimes Jesus realized we just don't know what we're doing. But for the average Christian, when we say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I want to access what you've done on the cross. I'm going to follow you. What that means is we've made a, we, we have decided to change how we live our lives. And essentially what that means is that we, before that moment, we were living our lives for our career. We were living our lives for our love. We were living our lives for money. We were living our lives for our kids. But the moment that we say, Jesus, we're going to trust you and we're going to actualize that trust through obedience. It means that, yes, we're still ambitious. Yes, we still love our jobs. Yes, we still are blessed with our kids. But the number one person that we are following above all is Jesus. And if Jesus says to us, like he said to Evelyn, it's time to leave your job even though it's a wonderful church. Because she's following Jesus. Her task is to say, yes, trust and obey. I love the fact that they are moving towards the priest who represents, you know, the, the space of holiness in the text. Not that the priest was perfect, because they certainly weren't. But they represent the place of holiness. And the suggestion is that when I, when, I, when I accept what Jesus has for me, that I start moving towards God's best for my life. Now, the problem is, when I turn towards Jesus, oftentimes it feels like I'm turning on my nature. And what my Muslim friend doesn't understand is because I'm turning on my nature, I'm often rising and falling and rising and falling. But the good news is I'm headed in the right direction. Well, Paul addresses this point that I'm trying to pull out here. In Romans 6, he says, look, you've heard about the grace of God. He says, well then. Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more for his wonderful grace? You're not talking about his wonderful grace, that's it, right? And the answer is, of course not. Shout, of course not. And what Paul is saying, man, it ought to be obvious to you. Come on now. That if you fully comprehend what Jesus has paid in order for you to claim him as both Lord and Savior, of course you don't want to claim him and keep going in the wrong direction. Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Meaning, that should no longer be our itinerary, our agenda, our goal. Our heart should be focused on pleasing God. That's how, he, that's how God then makes us better spouses and better parents. That's how God then begins to help us to move beyond our selfishness and beyond our dishonesty and beyond these areas that keeps us from knowing God's best for our lives. But will there be rising and falling and moments of stalling and stopping? Absolutely. But thank God for His grace. Shout by, say by shout grace. Now, here's where the text gets even richer. 
I like this. Ten of them was healed. Ten of them was healed as they were going. As they were being obedient, the miracle happened. Only one comes back. Now, this is a unique piece. The text says when he realizes that he's healed, he comes back to Jesus shouting, praise God. You see, when you realize that God has done something amazing for you, when you realize where you used to be and where you are, when you realize how God has saved you from yesterdays that should have swallowed you, when you realize how good God has been to you, there ought to be a part of you that just, just wanted to shout out. That's why we come to worship. We come. One of the reasons is just, to, just we just want to get with some people who know what it's like to be saved, who knows what it's like to be forgiven, who knows what it's like to be rescued, who knows what it's like to be down at the bottom of life. And Jesus loves you so that he picks you up. We just kind of want to be with people who understand that so that we can celebrate his goodness. He falls on his face and thanking Jesus. Can you say gratitude? Now, here's another. Listen now, track me. The kind of obedience that draws us into deep relationship with Jesus is not the kind of obedience that kind of comes out of desperation. Sometimes it starts there. But it is the obedience that is sustained by gratitude, by an awareness of who Jesus is and what he's done for our lives. Now, I said to you a few moments ago about how the priest would, would help reintegrate folk back in the community. Here's the point. Here's why. Because if you have leprosy, you're not a part, you're, you're isolated. And here's the deal. A lot of us, because when we think about the unforgivable stuff in our lives, it feels like leprosy. It makes us feel like we're the only one of us. It has its own a way to isolate us. But you're, you're not just called to believe, but you're called to belong. That God invites us into community. And it's in community, like sitting here, where we sing praise and worship songs, where we're reminded that the very thing that you have named for unforgivable has been forgiven. It's here as we participate in communion where you remember the very thing that you feel is unforgivable has been forgiven. It is in your small groups where you share stories and you hear other people share their stories about the unforgivableness that was in their lives and how it was forgiven. It, it enables you to remember and to remember and to remember you are forgiven. You need community can't just believe on your own. You need to believe in community. Because the next time the unforgivable rises in your mind, and I promise you it will, once you leave here, you say, wow, that was a great message. I'm forgiven. But just wait till tonight. The unforgivable will rise. 
And so the next time the unforgivableness rises in your life, you've got to say, stay right there. And you've got to go pull out of your memory bank the unforgettable. And the unforgettable is what Jesus has done. And what Jesus did on Calvary always trumps the unforgivable. Actually, it makes it forgivable. It's, your, it's, it's the work of the community to help us to remember that makes being in community so incredibly important. Community helps us to trust and what? And obey. Give God a hand, praise.